You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, guys, the year is almost over. I can't so believe, it. believe it. More what importantly, Star Wars is so almost here. Fast. When Star Wars is almost here. When people are able to download this episode, we will be one week away. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> oh, God. And also coming up, we're doing the first year-end wrap-up with Kara. Yay! You know, I won't... Really yeah. understand the first fifty percent of the year and wrap up. Ah, that's all right. So for our listeners, e- in the next week or so, email us your favorite episode, your favorite interview, science news item of the year, your favorite bit, your favorite bit. Who was the skeptic of the year? Who was the jackass of the year? Nice. Mm-hmm. Plenty of candidates. Yep. And and guys, please do this for us because I I at least rely heavily on I rely on you guys to remind me all the great shit of the past year because I forget most of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be bu- but told, the episode's a lot of fun. We'll have a lot of fun reviewing everything over the last year. We'll also talk about like our favorite email, the worst email we got of the year. So a lot oh. of candidates for that. Some, especially we, some recent ones. We get to do it like in person. There will be a, a fun energy because I'm going to be visiting you guys on the East Coast. Yeah. We, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. We record it while yes. Kara is with us. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be great. That will be fun. All right. Well, let's move on with our show. We got a good show for you this week. Bob, you're going to start with a forgotten superhero of science. Yes. For this week's forgotten superheroes of science, I am talking about Caroline Herschel. 1750 to 1848. She was an astronomer and the first woman known to discover a comet and also the first one to be paid for doing science. Herschel had an interesting life. It seems that her life wasn't supposed to be remarkable. She had so much going against her. Not only was she a woman in the 1700s, which is bad enough in terms of rights and things, but also she was scarred from diseases. And uh, she had typhus when she was 10, which stunted her growth, uh, leaving her at four four feet three inches tall so very tiny woman um her and because of that her parents realized that she well she'd probably never get married so her mother wanted her to train to be a maid with no education but her dad did not agree with that at all he gave her an education by himself beyond even what was typical for women at that time but it was her brother though that truly gave her life a chance. And he, of course, is the famous astronomer William Herschel. He discovered Uranus. Uh, he brought her with him as an assistant, where among many of her other duties, she did calculations and paperwork and ultimately made her own observations and discoveries. These included, uh, she was an independent discoverer of M110, which is a small companion galaxy of the Andromeda galaxy. That discovery is actually funny because I can't help but think of M110 and Andromeda uh, as a metaphor for Caroline and William. Uh, one was d- diminutive but active, and even though uh, associated with a dominant sibling, is very interesting in its own right. It's just interesting parallels. So continuing, Caroline was the first woman to discover a comet. Ultimately, she discovered eight of them. Uh, she discovered more than a dozen nebulas. And as I said, she was the first woman to receive regular government payment for her science work in a time when many men did not even get paid. And on top of that, she also helped William 
uh, to discover Uranus, which he said in his own words. So uh, also among her many awards, the Royal Astronomical Society presented her with their gold medal for her work. No woman would be uh, would get that award again until Vera Rubin in 1996. So remember Caroline Herschel. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing Hubble-type E5 dwarf spheroidal galaxies. That was nice of her brother to hook her up that way. Totally. He did, he to, he did not want her to, to live a life in poverty and doing manual labor. He brought her with her wherever he went, even when he was hired as the royal astronomer, brought her, brought her with him. And uh, she did a lot of his work. I mean, she just basically did whatever he said. But she got so knowledgeable and experienced that she made her own fantastic discoveries. Yeah, that is totally cool. All right, Evan, you're going to start off the news items with an update on Stern and their free energy machine. Kara, if you'll allow me, I'll say that today's <laughs> unscientific word of the day is free, as in free energy. Ah. That's, that is the root word of this week's new news item about free energy machines. So I think there are lots of evidence that tells us uh, what we perceive as being free almost always turns out not to be free at all. And this is no exception. Uh, Stern is a technology company based in Ireland, which boasts claims of having manufactured free energy devices. Now, a free energy device is generally defined as a machine which outputs more energy than it takes in or is required to make it run. And that's a simple enough concept to understand. However, it has a rather sizable limitation. So there is something in the universe we understand as the law of conservation of energy, which specifically states that in a closed system, like the machines that this company have produced, in a closed system, the amount of energy is fixed, must be fixed, is always fixed. That's the hurdle. That's the limitation. So maybe the company Stern has, in fact, made a breakthrough. And it's going to demand that we alter our understanding of this fundamental law of nature because they recently announced they now have two devices available for pre-order. Uh, one is called the O-Cube. Actually, the O-Cube is, a- is available for order. You can order oh. it now. The phone is the pre-order. Oh, I thought they were both uh, two pre-order devices. Okay, so the O-Cube is available now. A USB charging device. You could try to place an order now. Whether or not you'll actually get one has yet to be determined. Didn't they say that they'll ship in six weeks? Uh, I've been following a couple of tech sites. One site, Dispatches from the Future, has been trying to order an O-Cube and hasn't been able to actually place an order. Ah. So it's Hmm. unclear if they just don't have the infrastructure or if he's deliberately getting the runaround. But we'll talk about that more in a moment. 1,200 euros is all it costs you to... (laughs) <laughs> to uh, if you can place your order for the O-Cube, a USB charging device. And the O-Phone, uh, which is a cell phone that never has to be recharged. So they're, they're offering that, and you can pre-order that one. So it's based on their technology, which is known as the Orbo. Orbo Power Cells. And, and this is right from uh, one of the websites which promotes their products. Um, the, Orbo, the Orbo Power Cell pulls energy from the environment. It's a small solid state power station that never has to be recharged or plugged in. Now, the the CEO has clarified a couple of things. He mm-hmm. okay. said outright it's not harvesting ele- energy, right? So it's not just mm-hmm. harvesting electromagnetic waves in the environment, which so, not, some people okay. have hypothesized about. But he said, and if it did that, that would be kind of cool, you know? A, that would be an cool. energy harvester that was actually practical. But the problem be, is there isn't enough. Nice. There isn't enough energy most right, locations right. unless you're sitting right True. next to a 500 watt transmitter or something. Yeah, that's a classic problem. Yeah, today, just today, 
he published mm-hmm. an article. This is CEO Sean McCarthy, in which case, in in which he said, now he, his engineers don't understand how the anomaly, the quote unquote anomaly they've discovered works. But this is his okay. guess. I'll just read the quote. I think what might be happening is that we are splitting time. What? I know that, mm-hmm. I know that no, sounds wait, wait. absolutely nuts, but I think we are using the differences in the magnetic fields to manipulate time, and that is leading to the creation of energy. How? Yeah. Whoa. And that's entirely testable, yeah. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He basically said, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but we're <laughs> sucking energy from other spaces and times. Yeah. And dimensions and portals and wormholes and black holes. and other, Dark, dark energy. All the dark energy. Yes. There are dark energy, free energy devices out there. Oh, my No, there God. are. That's amazing. Really? Yeah. Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Steve, what happened in, in 2009 when, when Stern uh, actually invited scientists to come in and analyze their products? There were 22 scientists who came in. Yeah, they handpicked give- their own independent, open-minded you know, engineers and physicists, et cetera, and they studied it for two years, and they concluded it doesn't work. <laughs> hmm. It's pretty clear that they got what when I wrote about it, it said they got what every free energy crank dreams of getting scientists seriously studying their device. And they did it for two years and they concluded that it was not producing energy, period. Took two years. Well, I guess they were thorough. <laughs> they were very thorough. <laughs> now, why busy. couldn't they perceive this uh, time? Uh, uh, yeah. Ch- missing time. Splitting or time. Time lapse. Yeah. Splitting time or whatever. <laughs> I doubt any of them came up with that as a possible uh, suggestion. Well, you only need, you only need the uh, assumption as to how it works if it works. Right. <laughs> if it doesn't work, you don't have to explain how. Here's the thing. We all know that free energy is impossible. You can't violate the second law of thermodynamics. You, know, you just can't do it. There's, there's no free energy. And- all the things that they're hypothesizing, you know, in terms of like zero point energy or whatever, even if they were pos- possible, which they're not, you're talking about insignificant amounts of energy, you're just not going to power our civilization or recharge your iPad off of this stuff. My question is, though, what is the game? Yeah. So now he's selling these little O cubes or they're they're taking orders or they're at least mm-hmm. claiming that they're taking orders again. The, right. um, from what I read, no one's been able to actually place an order. What, not even place the order? Yeah, like they just can't get through to the per- – whatever. They say we'll get back to you or whatever. They just haven't been able Which is, to like actually – they haven't taken anybody's money. Let me put it that way. Yes, that's interesting. Right. Because that, once you take somebody's point. money, then you're guilty of fraud, right? <laughs> So what's their end game? Maybe he's already achieved his goal. Maybe maybe this is his end game where he's he could say we're you know we're selling the product we have it for sale but just never really selling any. Well, so yeah, it's a publicity for what? For, is it, is it, so one one scam that free energy scam artists run. So not like the true believers who are just deceived by their own scientific illiteracy, but just you know people who are trying to make money by scamming people into thinking they have a free energy device. I'm not assuming that that's the case here. Uh, one is that you're just luring in investors. You're just always right. holding that carrot out to investors while you're developing it and one more hurdle to overcome and you're just trying to string them along. He's been doing this for 15 years. Yep. First announced the Orbo in 2006, but his company's been since 2000 or 2001. So that's a long time to you know draw a huge salary off of investors uh, into technology that may just n- never manifest. But now that he's sort of, you know, there's a picture of a model holding the O cube and an iPad, and they're they're claiming to have a device, and they're taking orders and pre-orders. Now, how long are they going to be able to string that out? P- 
people are going to get these these bricks, which are basically paperweights, and and then what? Or they're not. So either he's never going to actually send somebody a device, or to actually take anybody's money, or he, if he does, what's going then? What's going to happen? I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of following along with this to to see what the next part of this game is. Yeah, that the next stage is going to be interesting because you're right. What's where's he going to go with this? He's if he's self deluded, then I could see him possibly selling them. But if he's not self deluded, then this is a bad move, and he really should just stick with his scheme of just stringing people along and and taking their money for the research that will never come to fruition. So yeah, this is a weird point in in his career. I'm, yeah, I'm so I'm trying to figure out how he could be self deluded. So here's one possibility. And that is that his devices are actually harvesting energy from electromagnetic waves. And he's just generating a shitload of electromagnetic waves in his lab. So they actually work in his lab because he's got equipment generating the energy, but they haven't tested it out in the field. You know, hmm. I'm just, this is just, I'm just totally speculating yeah. here. I'm just trying to think, is there any possible way he could, you know, have, been self-deluded into thinking that his dev- that you could charge an iPad in one day off of his device when it can't possibly work. What what's how is he deceiving himself? Well, Steve, but if you build a harvester, you're building a harvester. I mean, you it's that's very different from building something that that works off of free en- energy. I would think you'd have to explicitly build the harvester instead of just kind of accidentally I don't know. kind of sticking it in there. I mean, he's got these little wafers, you know, these little chips. Maybe they're picking up electromagnetic waves. I mean, how hard is it? I mean, I think you could do that accidentally. Perhaps. perhaps. Remember earlier this year when he took one of his devices out to a pub to do to do a test? Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't and, really a and, test and it was not, you know, observed properly. It was just no, it was, it was it a publicity it stunt. It wasn't it right, wasn't really publicity. a test. So we'll keep you updated. It's just, you know, interesting to see how far he's gonna string along this scam. Mm-hmm. All right, Kara. Yes. A new study has shed some light on storing nuclear waste. So let's talk yes. about that. So the main question that comes out of this study is, is our nuclear waste disposal as safe as we think it is? So before we get into what the study shows, I think we should talk a little bit about some background. Currently, we bring nuclear waste in this country to WIP, which is an acronym for the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is a Department of Energy repository deep in the New Mexico desert. I know a lot about WIP because... A few years ago, I actually did a television shoot at WIP for the Travel uh-huh. Channel. I was on a show cool. called America Declassified, and it was one of these <laughs> shoots where it was actually really fun. I got to go down into this plant and learn all about it, and I'll tell you more about that. But the funny thing is, when when it finally went to air, of course, they took what I thought of as sort of an innocuous shoot where we learned a lot about the science of nuclear waste disposal into an... Is this the most dangerous place in America? Um, which often happens. And no, the answer is no. Um, the answer is still no, <laughs> even after this study. Um, but we can talk a little bit about the, the new nuance that, that we figured out. So, so WIP is an interesting place. It's outside of Carlsbad, like 20 some odd miles outside of Carlsbad, sort of out in the middle of nowhere. When you drive up on it, it's just like sand and dirt. And then you see trucks and you see one building. But the majority of WIP is actually underground. That makes sense. It's basically 
an old salt mine or an old salt repository from the Permian age. So there's this salt that exists out in the desert from back when like the ocean was on land here in the United States and the time of Noah's Ark. Okay. Exactly. For back from Noah's mm-hmm. day. Um, and so mm-hmm. when the water all evaporated, we were left with all of this Permian age salt and it forms this really interesting geologic structure. And as far back as the 1950s, scientists were thinking, maybe these types of places would be good places to store things that we don't want to leak. Because salt has some really interesting properties. When it's packed so incredibly densely and under so much pressure, it basically doesn't allow for fluid transfer. And it especially doesn't allow for transfer of like oily fluids. Once in a while, what will happen is that the salt will crack, but because of the nature of these salt repositories, the pressure actually makes the salt self-healing. And even if there is a crack and something could kind of move into that crack, it'll seal up on its own naturally. So scientists have often thought about this as being a very good place to store nuclear waste. And even though WIP was under construction since the 80s, it didn't officially open until 1999. Uh, to this day, it holds uh, nearly 100,000 cubic meters of radioactive waste from World War II through the Cold War era. It's the only facility authorized to handle waste with atomic numbers that are higher than 92. So the majority of the waste that's actually held in WIP is waste from plutonium manufacture. So mm-hmm. things like gloves, um, clothes, sludge, anything that came in contact with the plutonium during its manufacture. It's the only place in the country that can accept nuclear waste from weapons programs. But there is no repository. There is no disposal place for spent nuclear fuel or related waste from commercial reactors. So do keep that in mind. Waste that's even more radioactive. Oftentimes you'll hear the waste at WIP referred to as low-level nuclear waste, which is funny because it's plutonium and it's weapons-grade manufacture. But there's actually high-level nuclear waste, which is like nuclear straight out of a power plant or spent nuclear fuel. We don't have anywhere to store that because nobody can agree on what we should do with it. So it's in temporary storage. Yeah, right now it's at 131 temporary sites in 39 states, including including 66 operating nuclear power plants. They're just basically storing their waste in pools next to their plant. Nearby. Yeah, it's something like 67,000 metric tons of spent nuclear fuel exist in this country. And we don't really know what to do with it. Um, But in in 1999, it was approved for WIP to open to start taking in all of the nuclear waste, basically from the Cold War era. And so big trucks will ship this waste across the country very carefully. And then it will be Mm -hmm. deposited down under these or down within these salt mines. It's fascinating, you guys. You ride a five minute elevator because you're going over 2000 feet below the surface. Whoa. It's the Jeez, weirdest hot, thing. Is it hot down there? Or what? It's actually kind of cold down there. It's very cavernous. Okay. And the salt itself, you can ship it off the walls. It's it's a fascinating yeah. uh, geological study. It's also a fascinating ecological study. Just as a random side note, when I was talking to their lead scientist when I was there for the show, he said that he had a team of grad students who were digging through the salt and they had found microorganisms that seemed to be sort of like in a sleep state. 
are evolutionarily indistinguishable from microorganisms that would have lived there back when it was Permian age. So it's very interesting, the kind of weird stuff that's happening this far below the surface of the earth, that things can actually live down there. Um, but so far, WIP has been pretty safe, you know, for the most part, no leaks, no major struggles. Uh, one good example, other than one that I'll tell you about, but one good example is that in 2011, a center in Carlsbad, which I said was less than 30 miles away, detected radioactive iodine in the atmosphere. Turns out it wasn't from WIP. It was actually from Fukushima. So the levels of radioactivity mm. coming out of WIP are nil. They're low enough or not at all to the extent that Fukushima levels are detectable above um, WIP levels out in the atmosphere. But things changed in February 2014. So this is about nine months after I visited. A fire broke out, which is a huge risk in a mine scenario i remember we all had to carry these portable breather machines these like cans just in case if a fire did break out they give you just enough air to get back out of the mine because it's you know it's a dangerous there's electricity running down there so people can see it's dangerous because you're kind of self-contained so a fire broke out and separately there was a radioactive leak that was detected but nobody could ever figure out the cause so because of that whip hasn't received any new waste since february 2004 Received a lot of waste between 99 and 2014. Now, that's your background on WIP, but let's move on to what this study tells us. It was actually published um, in November, the November issue of Science. It's called Deformation-Assisted Fluid Percolation in Rock Salt. It's a pretty innocuous-sounding title, but the findings could be significant, right, when we think about the way that we dispose mm -hmm. of nuclear waste. Here's what it tells us. Using 3D micro-CT imaging... Under certain conditions, researchers from the University of Texas have shown that salt mines can be permeable to liquids when this was previously thought to be impossible. So that's Not good. kind of a really big deal. It turns out that that liquid flow can happen for a lot of factors, yeah. but pressure and temperature seem to be key. So it actually turns out that they may be p more permeable. The salt itself may be more permeable the deeper down you go and the more pressure that is put on them, which is scary because that's mm. where all this stuff is buried. And it was previously thought, like I said before, that cracks in the salt could be the only culprit for leakage, but those cracks seal up so quickly because that's what salt does. It like self-seals, it self-heals. So there was never a concern that this would make its way into a water table, which is well above those 2,000 feet. There was never a concern that it could leach into other areas. But now it appears as though under very specific conditions, and the study here was done in salt mines that are used for storing petroleum products, because that's another usage of these big salt mines is to store things like oil, right? Because oil can't seep through salt, uh, or at least we didn't think it could. Uh, they found that what's actually happening is that the salt itself, the crystal structure of the rock salt itself is deforming, and it stretches these tiny little isolated pockets of brine that form between the salt crystals. So it's changing the actual interlocking uh, structure of the salt, and it ends up linking all of these little pockets to, to create a pore. And so once it creates that pore, it's like a network of pores, and that allows fluid to sometimes move through it. Now, there's no evidence whatsoever that this has happened at WIP. There's no evidence that this will happen at WIP. There's no evidence that this is, you know, widespread. But this is the first time that we've seen that under specific laboratory conditions with really high-powered, high-level imaging, this is possible. And that means that we need to have a bit of a paradigm shift and rethink the way that we're storing these things, which is a huge bummer considering because it seems to be the only viable storage, or I shouldn't say storage, it's actually a disposal technique that we have. Mm. Like what's better? And I think that's a big question. What about Yucca Mountain? 
What's going on at Yucca Mountain? So Yucca Mountain is very controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the government spent 20 years looking for the best site to put nuclear spent nuclear fuel, and they spent nine billion dollars. They, they've been ah, studying they've been geez. studying Yucca Mountain for 20 years, and they concluded the Department of Energy and the IEEE that they've studied it for years, and they concluded that it's completely stable. That it's stable for one million years. It's a thousand feet of rock below ground and a thousand feet above the water table. Uh, it's geologically stable. It's not porous. And they built an infrastructure of tunnels in there. They haven't completely prepared it for uh, the depository sites. But that's because Nevada, that's in, it's in Nevada, the state doesn't want it there. And now they're opposing it. So it seems gotcha. to be dead for now. Yeah, which, we've had the we, same problem. Yeah. Like it was ready to go for a while, but everybody had to agree like, hey, people don't want these trucks of nuclear waste going through their communities. Yeah, it seems to be a NIMBY problem. So yeah. I've, I've read the scientific debate back and forth, and it seems that the consensus, the science is on the pro-Yucca Mountain side, and that the, the objections that Nevada is raising are not valid. Um, one scientist said they just don't stand up to scrutiny. They, they just don't have the science. Um, this is but John Carrick, who's a fellow of the American Nuclear Society, reviewed their objections and said that there's just nothing to them. The science really shows that it's stable. The, the issue was raised about transporting it across the country, but you know we already do that, and there's never been an incident in 35 years. We know how to safely do it. Obviously, there's always risks, but it seems like the risk is pretty low. They've said, oh, it's a target for terrorists, and, and I don't see that either. Terrorists are not going to go after a heavily armed you know, infrastructure. They, they don't go at, against soldiers you know, who are defending who are armed and defending infrastructure, you know. It's also not a good place to try and get, like, you're not going to get yellow cake there. Like, this is spent no, fuel. No, no, no. So yeah. it's not even, like, helpful no, waste. Yeah, to dig anything waste out of there. So here's the, here's the other point that I've never seen anybody raise, but to me seems pretty interesting, is they want the site to be stable for a million years. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the standard. And, mm-hmm. you know, the critics are saying, oh, you know, this after thousands of years, this could be unstable. So do you really think that in 1,000 years, we're not going to have the technology to do something a little bit better with that spent nuclear fuel? Yeah. And the truth is, when you bury Watch it, it the, the way that we've been burying it, or at least not the nuclear fuel, but the um, but the weapons grade fuel, it's it's really systematic and redundant. Like yeah. it's in barrels, in these big metal containers, in these whatever. Then it gets crushed by the salt. Everything's really beautifully mapped. They know exactly where it is. They're testing with, you know, Geiger counters and all this stuff to make sure that there's no radiation on the outside of the container. Then the container becomes shielded. We know where it is, so if we had to dig it up once we have better shielding, we could totally do that. I think yeah. the important question, and this was the most fun question for me when I was talking to these scientists, and I'm interested to hear what you guys say, how do you market so that 30,000 years in the future, if there is a race that lives here, if there is a people, if if we are visited, if we have evolved in a different way and no longer speak the English language, whatever the case may be, how do you mark this site to warn people, don't dig here for oil, don't dig down for water, you don't want to go near this because it's still radioactive? Yeah, we actually talked about that on a, on a 
previous episode did you that's awesome because yeah. to me that's like the most fun not it's not fun but it's it's, it's a- interesting right but it's very problematic very yeah, because a cool question. You, i i've seen series of images that seem very straightforward yes this is a bad place do not go here but just by looking at it from just slightly different angle you can you can completely misinterpret what the images are i don't think there's a good mm. way to predict you know what would be absolutely effective uh well in doing and- that and some scientists would argue, some of these like planners would argue that just labeling it at all, even with a danger label, might actually invite people to want yes. to get there. I, I honestly think that it's not an issue unless our civilization collapses in the next century, because whatever we'll put the we'll put it someplace stable like Yucca Mountain, and you know what? In a hundred years, we'll probably be burning it as fuel. We'll be doing so in 200 years, 300 right. years, whatever. It, we, yeah. Fertilizer. We'll be, we'll be using it. Into the sun. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll have our space elevator. We'll, be, we'll just launch it, whatever. I'm sure there will be solutions. I, like that. I don't think that burying it is going to be our, our cutting-edge technological solution a thousand years from now. That's my point. I in agree. Fact, we, have, we have nuclear power plants today that can burn spent nuclear fuel of of Let's existing nuclear uh, right. power plants. We already have them, you know, the designs for these, you know, third fourth generation reactors that could that could burn the fuel, the waste of previous generation nuclear power plants already. So I So we're on our way. Yeah, so saying like, "Oh, we can't guarantee it's going to be stable for a million years." Who cares? I mean, I just don't think that's I mean, we're, we're doing that. That's I think the argument is that it is stable, but I just don't see that as a huge negative point it kind of assumes that we're not going to develop any other technological approaches to that spent nuclear fuel i think the concern is the eventuality that you mentioned if civilization collapses which i know sounds crazy but we'll have bigger problems (laughs) we will have bigger problems but that being said if civilization does collapse but that doesn't mean that earth is no longer inhabitable then because we have bigger problems, this will not be a priority, and it may be something that we never took care of. So yeah. we could be leaving a mm-hmm. really big problem for future generations or for future settlements. And I think that, to me, is what makes this a problem that absolutely needs a solution or at least some sort of um, e- eventuality yeah. worked in, a warning. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. Yeah, this week's course we're focusing on is Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, featuring our very own Stephen Novella. A wonderful, wonderful video course. You'll learn so much about how and why we think the way we do about so many different things. It covers topics such as neuroscience behind how the thinking works, memory, perception, cognitive biases, you name it. It's all in there and you will learn a lot. Yeah, you know, a common question that we get in our emails from listeners is, how do you distinguish science from pseudoscience? And there's already this wonderful course that Steve did that can help kind of illuminate those differences. So you should definitely check it out. So we really think that you guys should check out this course. And, you know, you could also pick from one or more of 500 other courses that they have. They cover all different types of topics like what, Bob? They cover the whole game from different areas of physics to psychology to history. I mean, you name it. They've got a course on it. As one of our SGU listeners, we have a special offer for you that that you can order from eight of the Great Courses' best-selling series, including Steve's Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills at up to, Evan, 80% off the original price. Oh, my God. 
That's oh. ac- that's actually fantastic price. Good this deal. 80% savings is only available for a limited time, so order today. You can go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. RJ, here's another medical ethical topic. You're going to tell us about the ethics of gene editing. Interesting thing here, right? We're, we're finally at this place now where we need to talk about gene editing. Who, who would have thought? I know, right? So, yeah, this technology has been on the horizon for a long time, um, and, and we're essentially talking about gene editing and gene manipulation. So this is right out of science fiction. The fact is scientists are already extensively altering genetic sequences and biomedical research, and they're doing it successfully. The thing is now we can target single genes and modify the genome you know, permanently, like just make a change and that's it. This is a game changer because... There's a new level of manipulation available to us now that lets us make dramatic changes. Let's talk about some obvious good things here. So someday we'll be able to do things like removing genes that would eventually make someone develop a disease like diabetes or ALS. We could change someone's predisposition that would develop cancer or different kinds of cancers. We could also alter genes that could extend, you know, the relative health into later years. So, you know, right now, a lot of people like you live a relatively healthy life until they get into their upper 60s and into their 70s. And then you could start to see, you know, degradation, serious degradation in that age range. You know, how about you're extraordinarily healthy up until the last couple of years of your life? That that would be an amazing thing. Or how about even just full on extending lifespans, which, you know, I think that the beginnings of that are already happening, but I think that that's going to be something that we're going to be seeing in the next 50 years. But Jay, even the lower hanging fruit, which you didn't explicitly mention, is treating specifically genetic diseases, not predispositions, mm. but you know, basically curing genetic diseases. You give a good example of that, Steve. You know, name a genetic disease like Tay-Sachs disease, you know, for example, or yes. what's the lung one? I'm blanking on it. Um, Air sacs disease? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Um, or like hunt- Huntington's would Huntington's, be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a big one. Yep. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about the CRISPR technology, which we talked about recently. But yeah. 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 Let's talk about some of the bad things now. Right. So, Bob, give me an example of something really bad that we could do. Um, well, you could create you could create a situation where uh, only people of a, a certain ethnic heritage. Uh, uh, will die from a horrible disease. So it's very specific to whoever you want to, whoever you want to harm. Yeah, that I was would, thinking that more would like, be bad. like from Gattaca, the movie Gattaca, where there's a transition, right? So th- this is probably going to happen, but you know, we got to deal with this appropriately, where there's going to be one to three generations of people that are going to be alive during this, the, the switchover, right? So there's going to be older people that have kids that, aren't genetically modified and their kids are going to be physically and possibly mentally superior to them in a lot of ways. And then the people that aren't genetically modified will be discriminated against. And that's, that's very interesting. I think Gattaca explored that, you know, very well. And it's definitely a movie you should take a look at. One of my favorite sci-fi movies. So can I, can I just explicitly state what I think the progression is in terms of using gene editing technology on humans? It starts with treating genetic diseases then progresses to treating genetic predispositions, making it less likely for you to get certain diseases. Are you talking in utero or or with li- like adults? 
all I mean, that, that's the, yeah that's all the thing the, you could do it in adults or you could do it on, on your germ cells which means that hmm. it's now part of the human you know genetic yeah. population uh, but then so you go genetic diseases then genetic predispositions and then health promotion making people even healthier and then just designer babies where you're altering traits that have nothing to do with health like eye color is always the example that right. people use or smarter taller yeah. Well, then, wow. yeah, then making superhumans and then giving people characteristics that are outside of the current range of what it means to be human. I can't the third wait. Third arm. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. You know, third then, arm? Uh, Why would it, you want that? Or a prehensile <laughs> tail. You know how many people, do you horns. know how many people would want to look like cats? Oh, Seriously. Yeah. Oh, so my gosh. All those viral so internet, funny. viral YouTube videos? Forget it. The CRISPR technology now gives now gives the ability to remove, insert, and modify genes. It's not perfect, but the technology is finally here. Scientists are actively discussing the technology and its ethics, so we're prepared for it. Now, last week, scientists from around the world gathered in Washington to hold a summit, and the results were that they came up with three recommendations. The first one is a gene-edited person may not injure or a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. <laughs> That's the first law. <laughs> Second one wow. is a gene-edited person must obey the orders given to it by a non-gene-edited person, mm-hmm. except where such orders would conflict with the first. No, you're not buying it. <laughs> no. no, sorry. But wait, no. real quick, Jay, real quick before you segue, what's the vector? How are they making these changes? Is it bacterial, viral? How are they actually it's doing RNA. this? Okay, wow. It's just RNA, yeah. They came up with three recommendations. So the, the first one is that they think intensive, basic, and preclinical research is clearly needed and should, and should proceed. That's one. Two, they are saying in regards to clinical use, which they call somatic, that there are many promising and valuable clinical applications of gene editing. So basically, Jay, somatic means you're affecting the person but not their offspring. And then there's, then there's clinical use germline. Germline is, is you're affecting their offspring. Their yeah. offspring. So, yeah. so what they do is they outline the three basic, the basic places where they, it, this technology can be used and then how to proceed uh, cautiously, which I think is fantastic. There's so much that's going to happen here. There's so much discovery. There's so much more technology to come that's going to continue to make this even more powerful. So I, I believe that, that science and scientists are doing the right thing here. We're taking a, a slow and metered approach on how to handle the ethics, you know, what yeah. is going to be appropriate? What are we all going to agree is going to be inappropriate and how to enforce it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things. It's like nanotechnology. It's inevitable. The benefits are just so magical that there's no stopping it. I think my, my sense is in terms of like the ethics, honestly, I think that pretty much anything anyone wants to do to themselves is probably okay. But they have to pay for it. Yeah, if you want to pay to have yourself <laughs> turned into a cat, go right ahead. <laughs> I think that when you affect germline, and this is really what they're what they were concerned about, then you're not just affecting yourself; you're creating genes that will that can get passed into the human population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then there's that you're affecting future generations. So that's where I think the line may be drawn for a while in terms of like right. doing wacky shit. You know, again. For yourself, somatic, whatever you want to do, but for um, anything that would enter into the germline, then we have to be especially cautious about, right? And what if it's also, what if you're just ensuring that your kids have your genes that you want to have? You know, like if you you could have a brown or blue-eyed kid and you want a blue-eyed kid, you could have one naturally, but you just want to make sure you get a blue-eyed kid. You know, how are people going to feel about that? So, Steve, that is to me, that's 
totally reasonable because what you're talking about is designing a kid that you could potentially have, but it might take a thousand tries before you had that kid. So yeah. what? You, if you could select that on purpose without having a thousand kids, more power to you because that's, because that's your kid. You haven't really modified them. What if, what if you want your kid to be smarter? Then of course you get the, the situation like, well, yeah, the rich kids get to be smart because they can afford, their parents can afford to have their yep. genes edited. But then you could say, all right, I want, uh, a certain gene that we know correlates with intelligence, but neither parent has the gene. Why should your child suffer because their parents don't happen to have this particular allele or version <laughs> of that gene? They have a right to that intelligence gene as much as anyone else. Well, who, who cares they? if they have it in there? So this is a gene that exists in the human population, right. just not in the parents. And then you can you keep ticking it over one step. Yes, you know. And then okay, well, now we could make this one little tweak to the gene that you know would might superhuman. Happen. Yeah, then we yeah that might happen eventually anyway. Now we're talking about essentially genetically modified people, and then you just keep going. You know, so I do th- I do think that's. But my it's, prediction is that's what's that's exactly what's going to happen. It, I mean, it it's take, an awesome d- uh, slippery slope. Yeah, I love it may it. take hundreds <laughs> of years, but I think each generation will get used to whatever yes, the standard is, and yes. then the next it's just one more step for the next generation, you know. And then and, and and I also think it's there's no real objective reason why it's bad. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we manage the risk, risk management is important. But once we manage the risk, and there's no unintended consequences, we've really got the technology down. What's objectively bad about it? And I think people's objections just get down to it ain't natural. Right. Yeah, but it's the playing God thing. Policy. Yeah. Playing yeah. God, it ain't natural. Whatever. I don't think those are the really legitimate concerns. You know, at, at the end of the day, because you they said that pretty much about every technological advance. That has to do with people. Yeah, I agree, Steve. What about things like the, the cohesiveness of of, uh, of civilization? I mean, you're, you're talking about the pretend the potential for the human civilization to splinter into various subgroups, many different I, subgroups of, of wildly different species. In, in effect, I think the definition of human huh. is going to broaden. Oh, absolutely. Ooh, Absolutely. It better. Oh, boy. That will lead to some interesting conflicts in the future, I think. Sure. Sure. Oh, boy. All right, Jay. Before we do Who's That Noisy, I have a noisy for you. You ready? Yes. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) My lightsaber. (laughs) Jay, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy. I will. Okay, so what was that, guys? Well, I knew it's 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 a science fiction movie sound effect. Yeah, Kara knows what it is. I do. You remember it last week? It was the, it was the theremin. The theremin. Oh, yeah. the theremin! I totally remember. Sorry, I pre- <laughs> I pre- but it's a digital theremin, right? Not an analog theremin. Right. So the different. So okay, look. Let me let me quickly tell everyone what this is. So a theremin is is a musical instrument that has two different um, antennas on it that pick up your hand positions, which allows you to change, uh, you know, different input. It's like, it's like an input into the, into this instrument that allows you to change the pitch, allows you to change the note and also allows you to change like a relative effect that's on there. So, I mean, you could set it up to do a lot of different things that you want, but it's, it's an amazingly weird sounding instrument that, that you've heard many, many, many times in a lot of movies and video games. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in the culture. So yeah. Interestingly, only instrument you play by not touching it. That's right. 
Yeah, so Sheldon I, Cooper played one on The Big Bang Theory. Oh yeah. How do you play? How do you do? Did you do well? It's also very hard to play. I sincerely doubt he was good at it. So yeah, the it one terrible. that I was using was actually an online theremin, and John Hancock the Fourth wrote in and said that was an online touch theremin. I was working on a wow. music hey. project once and used it quite a bit. If that's not what it is, then your noisy sounds exactly like it. Cheers! And he actually sent me the link to the same exact one that I found. That's amazing. <laughs> He nailed it. Yeah. So anyway, if you ever get the opportunity to mess around with the real thing, please go ahead and try because I'm dying to do it. I'm I'm really looking forward to finding someone that has one. But if you want to try the link, you can go to femurdesign.com forward slash theremin. That's T-H-E-R-E-M-I-N. And you can mess around with that one that I used. A lot of fun. So this week's Who's That Noisy? Good luck. This is a hard one. It's a whale on LSD. I think it sounds like a robot dog. (laughs) (laughs) Like a dog barking, but with effects over it. Uh, Somebody sent that in. I will reveal that person's name next week. Very, very hard to guess, but very cool, noisy. So if you have any guesses or any funny things to say to me or any any ideas for who's that noisy, please write to me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right, Kara, what's the word? What is the word? The word word this week is actually a word that was submitted by a listener. It was submitted by Tim Quinlan, and the word is consilience. I love this word. It's a great word. This is a word. It's a word that I actually didn't know, weirdly, as a science communicator. I feel like I should know it. it. Things Uh, coming together, right? Yes, things coming together, but more specifically, any guesses? It's also a title of a book by E.O. Wilson. Yes. It is a title of a book by E.O. Wilson, in which he kind of reinforces this idea. So so consilience is the linking together of principles from different disciplines, especially when forming a comprehensive theory. So specifically in the science, exactly. Consilience refers to the convergence or concordance of evidence in which a lot of different independent sources or schools of thought come together to form a greater unified theory. So if you look at it another way, I've seen this example used in a lot of places or or variations on this example. If I wanted to measure the speed that a runner achieves on the track, I could use a lot of different methods. I could use like a radar gun. I could calculate it geometrically. I could use a stopwatch, but they would all actually give me the same answer because even though he's even though I'm using different tools to measure it, the concept of him running and the speed at which he's running is standard and doesn't change. So if you extend that analogy to a larger phenomenon like evolution via natural selection, you see consilience from geology, genetics, biology, paleontology, physiology, anatomy, even physics, a whole lot of other fields of science. So uh, consilience as a principle is also relevant to philosophy, history, art, humanities, And the term itself was actually coined in like 1840 by William Wewell. It might be Huebel. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. W-H-E-W-E-L-L. And he's British. William Huebel. 
Webwell, uh, stating that, <laughs> quote, uh, the consilience of inductions, and that's really the, the um, whole phrase that he coined, the consilience of inductions takes place when an induction obtained from one class of facts coincides with an induction obtained from another different class. Thus, consilience is a test of the truth of the theory in which it occurs. So the word actually comes from the Latin com, meaning together, and salire, meaning to leap, like salient. So it literally translates or it literally comes from a jumping together. It is a great concept. It really gets to the heart of what is powerful about science. It's describing Mm -hmm. one underlying reality. If that underlying reality weren't there or if science weren't describing it in a meaningful way, we wouldn't see necessarily consilience, you know? Yeah. Like the evolution is real. That's why if you study either developmental biology or paleontology or geology or comparative anatomy or genetics, molecular genetics, all of those completely independent lines of evidence all lead to the same answer because the answer is true. And yes. that's the power of science. And it really, I think, helps reinforce one of the other common words. I I get this written to me all the time. What's the biggest word that people misuse in science? Or what's the difference between a scientific usage and a layman usage? And it's theory. You hear people talk all the time about yes. the difference between a theory and a hypothesis. And I get it. It was drilled into me when I was doing my master's thesis because I said, my theory is. And I remember my professor being like, you don't have a theory. You can't have a theory. A theory, you don't have the hubris to have your own theory about something. <laughs> a theory requires consilience. Other than that, it's a hypothesis. You have to have multiple lines of evidence. You just do. All right, Bob, an emailer. You, you mentioned kind of as a throwaway uh, the term frame dragging. Yes. And we got a question asking you simply to define frame dragging. What is it? It's a fascinating topic. It's uh, an outgrowth of Einstein's general relativity. Now, most of us know that mass warps space-time, like a dimple mm-hmm. uh, caused by a weight on a trampoline. That's kind of the I- iconic example of that. But there's another type of distortion that's introduced to space-time, and not by mass, but by spinning. So imagine if that weight on the trampoline spun. Imagine putting your hand on the weight and kind of spinning it in one direction. How? Imagine how it would drag the trampoline material with it if it was uh, pliable enough. Now, another helpful analogy is a spinning bowling ball in molasses. That's a that's an effective one. So you could you could imagine dragging the ball would drag some of the molasses along with it while it spins, kind of wrapping itself up in in that sticky mess. So now if you imagine two bugs that were stuck in the molasses as well, one close to the ball and one farther away, the close one would feel the effects more and pull away from the other one because of that wrapping around of the molasses around the ball. So that's how space-time works. Now, without the spinning or, or even uh, movement, there is no frame dragging. It just it wouldn't exist. Now, now the, the effect is tiny, as you could imagine, only about one part in a few trillion. trillion. So it's hard to detect – so you, you need a huge mass or incredibly sensitive instrumentation to actually get a handle on it. Now, uh, I, I want to give a shout out to Austrian physicists Joseph Lenz and Hans Thuring. They predicted frame dragging in 1918 based on Einstein's general relativity, of course, and it is sometimes therefore called the Lenz-Thuring effect. The effect has been spotted here and there uh, many times over the years, but it was uh, definitely found, I think, about 10 years ago using twin satellites that are orbiting the Earth. They calculated that those satellites 
uh, were dragged uh, a couple meters every year because the Earth is essentially trying to sheathe itself in in space-time, so it actually moves satellites. And uh, Frame Dragon has also been implicated in those awesome jets of radiation that black holes can spew out of their accretion disk. So there's my overview of Frame Dragging. That was very concise, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So we have a dumbest thing of the week this week. Yay. We've been neglecting this segment. Uh, This one comes via Orac, who wrote about this on uh, his blog, Respectful Insolence. Uh, He wrote about an anti-vaxxer by the name of Bo Reliosis, who bills herself as a 20-year survivor of Lyme disease and whose mission is to get the Lyme criminals prosecuted so that millions suffering can be properly diagnosed and treated. Yeah, so he's talking about chronic Lyme disease, not real Lyme disease, you know. There's no evidence that chronic Lyme disease exists or that treating it is helpful. But, you know, for expressing your the consilience of scientific evidence on that <laughs> topic, I you are you branded there. a criminal. A criminal just trying to keep people from getting properly treated. It's all a big conspiracy. But anyway, that's not the dumbest thing. The dumbest thing is – now, you know how anti-vaxxers have for the last, I don't know – 15 years or so, been claiming that thimerosal, the mercury-based preservative that is in some vaccines, that that is the cause of the alleged autism epidemic, which is not a real epidemic, even though it was removed from the routine vaccine schedule around 2002, now 13 years later. It's only in some, about a third of the multi-dose flu vaccines still have it uh, which is a you know a small amount. Some states don't have it at all. Like California, you can't get any vaccines with thimerosal in it. But so the the dose has been dramatically reduced to to negligible, and the which hasn't affected autism rates at all. Which was pretty much the last nail in the coffin of the thimerosal causes autism hypothesis, right? So now she's saying uh, this anti-vaxxer Borreliosis that. It, it was the removal of thimerosal from the vaccines that caused the autism epidemic. What? Got that? <laughs> this is a this, this would be what we call yeah moving the goalpost. Yes, somebody said or in the replacing comments replacing the goalpost. This is moving the goalposts all the way around the earth so that it hits you in the back of the head. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, she's arguing that the thimerosal was preventing fungal contamination. Yeah. That's what it does. And that (laughs) the fungal contamination is reducing the immune system of children who are getting infected with the virus, which is causing the uh, autism. Which means you can't win, right? You just can't win. People are willing to do do what I call making shit up. (laughs) Then there's just no winning with them. And what's frustrating is you read her article and she, like all conspiracy theorists, she says, it's obvious. It's totally <laughs> obvious that this is so what's obvious. happening. Is it really that obvious? Seems like it's absurd would so, be the word I would use. So that wasn't an Onion article after all, huh? No, no, no. That's, that was serious. Wow. I have to add that there isn't an autism epidemic that if you look at it uh, properly, autism rates are flat. It's just that the, the true incidence is flat, but the number of diagnoses is increasing because of diagnost- diagnostic substitution, expanding the definition, greater surveillance. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a child who today is diagnosed with autism would have been diagnosed with just a nonspecific developmental disorder or a language disorder or some other 
diagnosis. Um, or they just wouldn't have been diagnosed with anything. They wouldn't have been captured at all. Well, coming up, we have an interview that we recorded at TAM this year with Michael Shermer. This is an excerpt of a longer interview, which will be available in premium content. We are sitting here at TAM 2015 with Michael Shermer. My- Michael, welcome back to the Skeptic Sky. Good to be back on. It's been a while. Yep. Yeah. Always a pleasure to have you. Uh, obviously one of the preeminent skeptics, uh, head of the Skeptic Society, author of many books, uh, Why People Believe Weird Things. This is one of the first like mm-hmm. hardcore skeptical books oh, yeah. I read. I know it's a lot of people's introduction into skepticism and the skeptical movement. Um, but I know you're here today to talk about your latest book, uh, The Moral Arc. So tell us about that. Yep. Um, so um, the inspiration for the title, of course, comes from Dr. King's famous speech. Uh, the culmination of his march from Selma to Montgomery, how long will it be before we... You know, get get this the prize and you know not long because the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. He got that from a 19th century Unitarian preacher named Theodore Parker, ah. uh, who in 1853 said, uh, you know, I I don't know how long it's going to take, but my eye sees but little ways, but from what I can tell and divine by conscious, it bends toward you know the arc bends towards justice. Now, but we don't have to depend on divinity or conscious. We can see it in the data. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of like the number of democracies that there are, liberal democracies, there were zero in 1900, yeah. you know, where all adults can vote. Now there's 118. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, women's right to vote, African Americans' right to vote, gay marriage is, you know, the latest one. And the beautiful thing about the same sex marriage revolution is that it unfolded fairly rapidly in our own lifetime. Very sure rapidly. Oh, you sure did. You could, you could see Let's it in the polls. Ten years. I mean, yeah. think about ten years ago. Totally it was one generation. Totally different. Yeah. 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 Well, 69 was Stone, Stonewall. And, uh, so it sort of picked up momentum with, uh, uh, gay marches in the 70s. Uh, and then a lot of pop culture changes in the 80s. And then the legal changes started in the 90s and the 2000s. So that's pretty common how it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, first you have to change people's minds. Then you change the law. Then the hard, hard part is enforce the law. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, so there's a few southern states that say, well, I'm not going to give anybody any more marriage license. Fine. <laughs> but there are, always, there are always those holdouts at the yes. ends of any of these, yeah. any of these seminal movements. People in, in who want to stand against history and be remembered as the, as yeah. the, the last grasp. Well, yeah. But sometimes that's standing. more dangerous. It yeah. can be more violent. It can be, you know, a tougher thing to push through. I mean, Jim Crow, I mean, I'm not going to say Jim Crow was more violent or dangerous than slavery, but it was a whole yeah. second wave mm-hmm. that yeah. I think mm-hmm. people expected but maybe didn't know would be as bad as it was. Yeah, we're kind of experiencing it now with the whole Confederate flag situation yes. in the, here yep. in the United States, which yep. was a symbol of the uh, from the old Civil War of the Southern uh, Confederate Confederacy of States, which is now really just in this last year has kind of crumbled really in a really rapid pace. That one happened just like in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. where you know it was a debate and then boom, yeah. done. Came out of nowhere. <laughs> Came well, out of, yeah. yeah, it ah. seemed to be triggered by the mass shooting. At, yes, right. At yes, the church. That's right. Some people have speculated that the um, the way that the families of the victims responded, you know, with such forgiveness, that it kind of shamed everyone to eat the Southern culture sure. into saying, "Okay, we'll give you the, the Confederate flag." You kind of they had they felt almost felt like they, they had to respond. Not to would have made them seem so small, mm-hmm. you know, right. in response to you know such an amazing response to the horrible you know killings. Anyway, yeah, you, you were struggling to explain why it was such a rapid. Thing that happened, where suddenly they're taking the Confederate flag down, yeah. where nobody would have thought that no. a month ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you know, ideas matter, symbols, language, mm-hmm. the words mm-hmm. you use, the, the you know the symbols of things. They do count. 
you know, sometimes the PC police go too far, you know, like yeah. on college campuses or whatever. But that's just a, a, ba- a slight backlash against the trends that are good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain words we shouldn't use. There's certain thoughts you really, really should not be having. And, mo- and few people have them anymore, and it's mo- mostly older guys. Yeah. You know, the Donald Sterlings of the world, you know, talking about African-Americans coming to my game, and I don't like it. You know, but the guy's 80-something, right? And uh, yeah. Hard that, to change the mind yeah. of an 80-something-year-old man. Who That's lives right. through a different world oh, sure. than we live in. Yeah, back in, the 50s, back in the 50s, most old guys, my dads yeah. were, you know, they, they would say stuff that I would be oh horrified to say. Yeah. My dad. <laughs> Michael, do you think Boy. it's, you know, and I'm not, this is not a loaded question at all. We have, a, a, my, our father is a Fox News watcher. But do you think it's okay for us to say, you know, that it's okay for that generation to think and feel that way? We, I, it's not because worth it. Because they're going to be dead soon? Not, 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 <laughs> it's almost like it's not worth the time and energy it would take for such a small margin of return. I don't want to have my discussions with my dad revolve around trying to defox him. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or whatever. Yeah. All the other things that go along with it. What do yeah. you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, all you can do is talk to yeah. them and say, either try to reason their way around or just say, you know, dad, that's just not cool. I mean, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> You're embarrassing you know? me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I see that so, it's not right. <laughs> it's not right. Yeah. Uh, James Flynn has an interesting story. You know, they got the Flynn effect, uh, yeah. psychologist. Uh, about tra- he and his brother trying to talk to their dad about, you know, who was pretty racist. And he said, you know, now, Dad, what if you woke up tomorrow and your skin was black? You know, would you still feel the same way? And that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Whoever heard of somebody's skin changing color is like, Dad, it's a hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? This couldn't go there. There's also a MASH episode, by the way, if you remember. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. the oh, there was? Yeah, yeah, there was a racist that they were treating in, in the hospital. You know, oh, he didn't want right. to be in the same place as colored folks. Oh, right. So they, while he was asleep that night, they colored his skin and they woke up. Oh, my gosh, what the heck? Yeah, right. It's yeah. also a South Park episode when... Uh, Oh, he becomes a he ginger. Oh, yeah. yeah, the ginger, yes. Yeah. Or like Tim Minchin's song, you know, yeah. about the N-word, but it's ginger. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right, so, right. But, but you know, so much of moral progress is made through pop culture. Cartoons, mm-hmm. literature, mm-hmm. comic books, newspapers, Absolutely. movies, the, you know, the coming out campaign mm-hmm. uh, that uh, atheists are going through now is modeled right. after this, you know, the gay... Uh, rights, which is, you know, come out on TV, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or in a, in a novel or whatever. Yeah, you know, and that's an, and that's a movement that's really kind of suffered, especially in the realm of politics. I mean, it wasn't, isn't recent surveys say that the, that the last person people want representing them in Congress is an atheist, yeah, is basically atheist. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're on, uh, on the brink of something, maybe breaking through so. that wall. I think that's, okay, so the future rights, so. For transgender, that's happening right now. Like, yeah, we're, we're, like we're, this week. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, secularist, atheists, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's the next meme to knock down. Is, but it's you know, weird because, be like, everyone in Hollywood is atheist. Yes. Like, if they're not yeah. Scientologists, they're atheists. <laughs> yeah. you know? So if they were more open about it, it's, it's so many people are non-believers in Hollywood, but it's just kind of still a third rail. They're afraid they're not going to get yeah. work. They're yeah. afraid they're going to offend the wrong person. And Atheist is the dirtiest word. Mm-hmm. Well, half our country equates it with being a uh, Satanist. Yeah. Which is weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, strange. Well, I think that stems from that there was sort of a movement of the occult and supernatural yeah. from like 1967 in 1980, mm. you know, with the uh, uh, all the uh, occult films like uh, The Exorcist, and, you know, the the oh, Omen, Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary's Baby, Black Sabbath, all the song, the rockers that were doing all the oh sure, and then people the finding Zeppelin the back, yeah, yeah, backwards yeah. and all that. So there was kind of a you know just a little pop culture drive to that, and I yeah. think atheists got lumped into that because of Alistair Crowley, yeah. you know, the yeah. interest in yeah, Alistair yeah. Crowley, and then the, who was the Satan guy? Um, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, the that was like that was Anton Levey, Anton Levey, and that was one of the first kind of trendy Hollywood religion 
friends. Yeah. You have pictures of people who are now Scientologists or Oops. people who went through the Kabbalah thing standing <laughs> next to Anton LaVey in yes. kind of the 70s and yeah. 80s. Mm-hmm. Like, that's funny. Yeah, I think atheists <laughs> got lumped into that. Yeah. I thought that maybe it was that in their worldview, their narrative, you're either for God or against God. And so if you don't believe in God, that means you're against God, which is actively the, working that's against the, God. That's yeah. the Satan camp. Well, and that's right, actually so a, worse. You're in two camps. Like yeah. having, I mean, for at least my parents, Mormon parents, having accepted Jesus and been baptized into the LDS faith and then actually rejecting it and leaving is so much worse than having never been uh, Christian to begin with. Yeah. So, and the only explanation there is, well, Satan's at work in Satan doing that. Yeah. 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 But, but then there's the shift. You, you, from my perspective, it's dad. I don't believe in God. Why would I believe in the devil? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the crazy. same category. The devil gets yeah. in. That's the, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, are these some of the things that are in your book that you, yes, that you touch yeah, on? Yeah, absolutely. Including that in the middle ages when people started debunking things like witches, then after that it was like, well, maybe the whole occult Satan thing isn't true. Maybe there is no devil. And then, then, then the church said, hey, Wait a minute. If there's no devil, then maybe there's no God, and yeah. we you know, no, no. So we got to have some belief in witches, maybe because then there's Satan, then there's God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so once you start down the road of debunking the supernatural at all, then you're going to end up yeah. with nothing. Mm-hmm. And also, you need it to co-opt other um, more tribal religions, which is so common historically. Yeah. Of you know, the white evangelical movement from the United States is going to other countries and going, "What do you believe in now? We can work that in." I could work yeah. that magical thinking into yeah. this religion. Yeah. Did you and see then you Book have this weird hybrid one. Yes. yes. Love, Love it. See, another example of, you know. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. That, oh my gosh. That, how can you be angry about that? Yeah. Even if you're Mormon, because I, I know Mormons go, Mormons bought ads in the program. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. They thought, well, this is so cool. <laughs> we might as well use it as a vehicle. Wow. Uh, so, you know, that's how it ends. And then eventually people, you know, well, this is Richard's idea. Mm-hmm. Dawkins of, you know, make fun of it. I mean, just, yeah. or South Park or Family Guy. It marginalized. You know, you, 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 or yeah. Julius. Sweeney's sort of nice, funny way of yeah. talking about religion. How can you not like Julia Sweeney? Right. And at the end, she's you go, horrible. "Oh, but she's right. Uh, mm-hmm. But she's so funny and nice. But oh, she's right about this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, humor definitely could be a cultural leading edge. So he buys you, yeah, you know, some leeway. Are you? Do you agree? Then it sounds like you do with Steven Pinker that fundamentally the human arc is towards. More justice, less violence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Steve and I are in the same worldview. That enlightenment humanism that I was talking about, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that that's what it is. It, it, it's not any particular one political position, but yeah. this idea that that right, right and wrong are knowable. I mean, that that moral values are knowable, and and we already agree with you know, democracy is better than a theocracy. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, because more people have more freedom and liberty and autonomy. Uh, over their own choices than under a theocracy. Okay, why is that good? Well, because by human nature, we want to be able to make our own choices mm-hmm. rather than having somebody else. Anyway, that, that's kind of the line of reasoning. Yeah, but since you bring that up, the whole idea that morality, we, there could be some objective scientific right or wrong when it comes to morality. So does that put you in the Sam Harris camp? Yes. Versus the the, yes. the uh, Massimo Pellucci. Absolutely. So you you, you disagree with Massimo? Absolutely. I Can do. you state the premise? Yeah. yeah, yeah we so need so a, yeah, I got to tell you, I'm in the Massimo side yeah. on this one. So, Ooh, uh, fight it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's a very interesting, I think, philosophical discussion, and then I understand about the, the points on both sides, but. If you mind, Paul, I'll just summarize it very yeah. quickly. So Sam, you're wrong. Here's the distinction. I mean, obviously, uh, science, logic, ethics, philosophy, facts can inform moral decision making. But the, the, I guess the question is, can you make ultimate moral uh, choices 
that are completely science and evidence-based, or is there, at some point, this is where Massimo says, well, at some point you're making a philosophical uh, decision. Mm -hmm. And so you can't factor philosophy out of it. And uh, I just think that Massimo won that exchange with Sam Harris on mm -hmm. philosophical grounds. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't separate philosophy from science. I think yeah. philosophy is the, the, the foundation of all of science. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not one of those that say, oh, philosophy's dead, and... And so, but I'm also using science in a very broad sense, meaning reason and okay. empiricism. So, you know, the, the, you know, from Aristotle on, the stuff Massimo talks about, of course, you know, that's part of what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, so there, there may not be absolute right and wrong, uh, answers to certain moral questions. Mm -hmm. You're different from me and, and so forth. Uh, so, but, but, but the, but say democracy is itself a kind of experiment. Mm -hmm. All right. So there is not one right answer, but let's, so let's run the experiment and try it for a while. We'll try this tax rate or, 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 you know, or this set of laws or whatever, and we'll see how it goes. And then, and then we'll run the experiment again in four more years and so on. That it, itself is a kind of a scientific process mm -hmm. that, that there isn't one truth. So Sam's idea of multiple peaks, on the moral landscape, um, you know, m maybe I like a high tax rate and you like a low tax rate. Well, okay, then I'll live in the, you live in Nevada and I'll live in California or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, options. you know, that's not a perfect solution. But in general, we can agree, say, democracies are better than dictatorships. South Korea is better than North Korea on any uh, objective measurable standard. We would all agree. So, so I'm, I'm picking a low-hanging fruit there. Yeah. yeah. But, but still, make to, to make the point, uh, why? Why is that better? I mean, yeah. if you want to, you know, Massimo's point might be, might be, or maybe not his, but some, you know, that relativism, the relativism of Western values. Who are we to say what North Koreans should? Well, just ask the North Koreans. They're trying to lead. They don't want to live there. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and, and that's a sign. You know, Iranians would really probably rather have democracy. That's what the polls show, right. uh, and, and so on. So, but why? Why would that be? I, so, with Pinker, I argue that there's a certain we have a human nature that's real. It's not relative. It's not a blank slate. It isn't just a matter of your culture where you happen to have been raised. There's yeah. more that that's deeper in there. And I, so, I think it begins with the, the the desire for autonomy. So, the long moral arc has been to get give more people more choices over their body and their minds. Mm -hmm. Their ideas and, say, reproductive choices would be a classic example. Right. You know, that's a good move uh, and, and has liberated women everywhere. So, you know, the Pope is on the wrong side of that one. Yeah. We like the Pope, right, because he said us atheists may, <laughs> we may, we may still get in there, <laughs> just in case. And he's, and he's, and he's not hostile to gays. Okay, that's yeah. good. He likes but, exorisms, though. That's another story. Yeah, that's yeah. another he's, story. You know, he's all about climate, climate change and being concerned about that. You know, he's got some points. He yeah. deblinged his throne. He deblinged his that throne. We like cool. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but why not say, okay, you know what, I think we need to change the thing about women. Women should be able to choose to do what they're, they're already doing it anyway. Yeah. So right. we should just, you know, get on board. Uh, you know, it's like the same-sex marriage. You get on the right side of history. So what is that right side? It's moving toward more autonomy right. and choice over choice. Right, right, right. And so that, so, uh, so I'm saying that we can measure that. We can say, look, there's certain governments that are better for that. Now maybe, you know, you prefer a, a constitutional republic versus a, uh, you know, what England has versus what France has versus what Germany has. But those would all just be different peaks on the moral landscape. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there isn't one right government, but, but right. There, this cluster over here is way better than this cluster over there. Yeah, I guess, right. so it's a matter of just how you go about measuring it? Yep, 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 yep. Well, it, it, in a way, but again, it's like 
there isn't one perfect right government. Yeah. There's no perfect. So, but how are we going to figure out? There's trade-offs. Out? There's trade-offs, right? And you have to decide what trade-offs you want to make. Right. You know, which is that's so an election is again, it's like an experiment. This is why Jefferson called the American experiment. This is what he meant. It's like mm-hmm. an experiment. We still he use was, that expression. Yeah. He was a scientist. Yeah. You know, oh, he was yes. a naturalist. Uh, they all were Hobbes, Locke. You know, they were all in the, Locke was in the tradition of Descartes. Hobbes in the tradition of Galileo mm-hmm. Newton. You know, they're doing science. In their minds, they were doing science right, right, in this right. broader sense. Yeah, and just to be fair, just to, you know, because I, I do know what Massimo's position is on this, that if you're subsuming philosophy under science and you're just essentially making the debate go away by saying, well, yeah, I, I agree. His only real point is that it's pure science isn't enough. You need ethic, ethical philosophy yep. as well. And I think it's where he sort of was arguing with, with Harris because even saying that, well, North Korea is better than South Korea, well, you're, then you're deciding that, you know, the people being happier or whatever, that some outcome, or that you're, that the outcome is the measure, that, that even having an outcome-based ethical system, that's a, that's a philosophical decision that you're making. I'm not saying it's not an obvious or a good one, but it is, but you have to at least recognize that's a philosophical decision, not something that's purely determined by science. That's it. That's the only uh-huh. real, yeah. I think. Well, oh, see, even that, to, I would say that the philosophical position is grounded in something in our human nature. I think. Well, it's, but even saying that human nature is something to be grounded in is a philosophical decision. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> you, know, you can't. can't you following this, Jay? You never get down to bedrock. You always get down to saying, okay, we're just going to agree that this is you know, the, the fundamental principles that we're going to that we all agree on. You know, that's yeah. and even saying that is is making a philosophical. So if you say, well, it's a Western way to think. Yeah, but it's also a human way to think. Yeah, or but like if you said like autonomy. It's like, well, maybe Chinese people might have something different yes, to say about that. Yes, they might think that yes, doing yes. things together is is the way yes. to, for, to a better moral so society. Is the, perfect, yeah. it is, is the perfect scenario, and this is just theoretical, of course, but is the perfect scenario where we can just create the reality we want to live in in a virtual reality and shape everything to... to <laughs> no, but think about that. No. <laughs> that sounds horrible. No, I, I, I agree with, with yeah. what you're saying, but you know, I, we could take this type of sentiment to the extreme and say everyone has the right to just be, live in a world that they choose to live in. Interesting. This kind of solipsistic yeah. idea. But, but what I disagree with about that, and I'm wondering what you think, is regardless of whether you're on... The, and it's a very close argument, I think, yeah. Between, yeah. between these these two camps. I agree. Do we all at this table agree that being being fundamental about our views and about our beliefs, unwaveringly fundamentalist oh, yeah. in those views is almost always dangerous. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And that's and really where that comes almost, from. you're saying almost just so you're not being fundamentalist. Exactly. <laughs> I had to hedge it somehow. Right. And yeah. I think that's what we often talk about is, okay, well, we want our own autonomy, but mm-hmm. we want kinship relationships, and we want to have Certain the right protections. to the, But if you take it to an extreme place, you're, yeah. you're almost always going to go off yeah. the rails. Yeah. Science fiction people, they play with these ideas. Yeah, so sure. we colonize Mars, and we set up a new society there. Yeah. What would it? What would we end up with there? Mm-hmm. Well, if it's human nature, you're going to end up with some, some kind of government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there was a fa- family Got, no, it was the Simpsons, I think, where, you know, let's, no more taxes, no more government. That's right. You know, and then, yes. then no one's picking up the trash. Okay. Yeah. We need to have some trash collection system. Okay. Everybody pitch in. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're ending up with the tax system again. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. we, it, so by human nature, there's going to be inevitable conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to defend yourself and so on. So you're going to end up resource with resource allocation. Yeah. yeah there's no way around. Yeah. It. yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. On the show. We really appreciate That's, it. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back on the show. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Squarespace.com. 
Steve, as you know, I have built more than one website using Squarespace. I really like it. I love it, actually. I think the the interface is very easy to use. Squarespace is perfect for people that don't actually have the know-how, the skills, or the time to build a website by hand. Yeah, you know what? I use Squarespace for my personal website, and I find that it's so helpful. I can update it every day. It's manageable. It's not overwhelming. And I didn't need somebody to sit down and write professional code or program it for me. I can always update anytime I have a new appearance. I can put it right there on the website. It's really intuitive. The tools are so easy to use. And it's also really secure and stable. Starts at only $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. And you know what? You could play along at home if you so desire. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. (laughs) We had a theme last week. This week, no theme, just three interesting news items. You guys ready? No. Do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Novella Brothers cutting tank last week, if I recall. No, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Define tanked (laughs) All right (laughs) Item number one A new study finds that increasing the alcohol tax in Maryland Was followed by a decrease in the incidence of gonorrhea Item number two A paper published in Applied Energy shows that storing energy in metal powder Is a feasible alternative to fossil fuels And item number three, new research finds that feeding pigs human food waste, or swill, is partially responsible for the recent swine flu epidemic. All right, Kara, go first. Oh, gosh. Okay. Increasing the alcohol tax in Maryland was followed by a decrease in the incidence of gonorrhea. What? (laughs) I mean, I guess I could stretch and say that those two things are related. Uh, I would hope that that's still just a correlative study because I don't see any way to say that there's a cause and effect relationship there. I'm going to move on because I'm really wary of that one. A paper published in Applied Energy shows that storing energy in metal powder is a feasible alternative to fossil fuels. I don't know. I buy that. I'm not sure how it would work. I'm not an engineer, but it seems plausible to me. Um, seems like something somebody would be working on. New research finds that feeding pigs human food waste or swill is partially responsible for the recent swine flu epidemic. See, that one gets me. I feel like the swine flu epidemic was like a zoonotic situation, like a cro- like a spillover. How would they spill over if they're eating our? It seems more like if we're eating pig waste. Mm, Z- zoonotic, say, huh? Yeah. I'm going to say that the one about the alcohol tax going up and the gonorrhea rate going down is just so crazy that you threw that in there as a curveball and that that's science. I'm also going to say that metal powder being an alternative for fossil fuels is science. And I'm going to say that the swill being partially responsible for swine flu is the fiction. I feel like there's another variable there. All right, Bob. I pretty much agree uh, with a lot that you said. Yeah, you could see the connection between alcohol tax and gonorrhea, but a pretty tenuous one. The metal powder, 
Yeah, I, I can kind of see that too. I'm not sure how that, how they would pull that off as well. Uh, um, fireworks use metal powders, don't they? That would be actually pretty cool if they could uh, replace fossil fuels with that to some extent anyway. Um, yeah, the pig one is just rubbing me wrong. It just doesn't quite make sense to me what little I know about that type of thing. So I'll say the pigs are false. Evan. Okay, increasing an alcohol tax and decreasing the incidence of gonorrhea. Well, I would assume that's what's happening here is that uh, people are not consuming as much alcohol. They're making better decisions about things such as uh, better sexual behavior and therefore gonorrhea goes down. So I think that one's going to be right. Storing energy in metal powder, a feasible, feasible alternative to fossil fuels. Well, that's a lot of power powder i mean <laughs> storing energy in metal power i'm not even really sure how that happens and but the pig one i don't know how this one is possible um human food waste uh, gross i hate this one um <laughs> <laughs> this one just grosses me out obviously but responsible for the recent swine flu epidemic no i don't think so i i go with the crowd and i'll say that, that one's fiction and jay you know the, the one about the alcohol tax, they increase the alcohol tax. Okay, booze is more expensive. Let's buy less booze or we can't afford it. All right, and that means that people aren't having sex and there's a decrease in gonorrhea. Like, weird. Okay. The second one here about storing energy in metal powder, out of out of the three, that one makes the most sense to me. I can, I can totally see that being feasible. And then this last one. My big question about the pigs is, haven't we historically always fed pigs the crappiest of the crap food from the, the human kitchen table, like the scraps and the leftover stuff, and they'll eat rotten stuff? Slop. There you go. Right from Charlotte's Web, Bob. And swill. Yeah. Slop, swill. So Sloppy I'm swill. Scraps. I'm, I'm agreeing with uh, whoever said that one is not true because I don't think what they eat has an effect on them catching like or, or you know having that add to like the swine flu epidemic in any way it just sounds preposterous to me all right so let's take these in order then uh, we'll start with number one a new study okay. finds that increasing the alcohol tax in maryland was followed by a decrease in the incidence of gonorrhea you all think that that one is science and that one is say it science yeah baby yes mm-hmm so, yeah, that was kind of a, was a bit of a funny one, yeah. but, Whoa. you know, it makes sense once you think about it a little bit. So, again, this study was just showing the correlation. It didn't prove any cause and effect, right? It just said, yeah, they raised the alcohol tax and then followed – gonorrhea was on the upswing, actually, gonorrhea and chlamydia, mainly in young people. And But after the 2015 rate dropped significantly in Maryland specifically after they increased the alcohol tax. Now, the thinking is – as I think some of you pointed out, that alcohol is more expensive. People drink less. They make fewer risky or reckless decisions. They essentially have less hmm. risky sex. And also, if they do have sex, they're more likely to use protection. Lock the door. Yeah. Uh, and that reduces the risk of sexually transmitted diseases, which are you know a product of risky behavior. So that seems fairly plausible. People make bad decisions when they're inebriated. Number two, a paper published in Applied Energy shows that storing energy in metal powder is a feasible alternative to fossil fuels. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Oh, yes. of course it is. Uh, happy to have yes, one first, you guys. <laughs> so that, wow. So, yeah, this is cool. 
this is just a feasibility paper. They don't even have a prototype or anything yet. That would be the next step. Yeah, if you if you turn metals like iron would be the most obvious one into a fine powder like flour, you know, like powdered like that fine, uh-huh. you could burn it. This is nothing new in and of itself. It's been used for years in fireworks. Uh, it's also used in rockets as rocket fuel, solid rocket fuel. But what they were looking at is could you have a sustained flame that could be used in an external combustion engine, essentially similar to um, the way heat energy is used in, in a power plant. You, know, you make steam, turn a turbine. And they found that, yeah, you could. You could uh, have a controlled sustained flame by aerosolizing powdered metal. They also did an analysis which showed that uh, depending on how you make the powdered metal, you know, you could use techniques, uh, say, power it through wind and solar. You know, you could use green uh, energy to power the process and you could have very little CO2 release in that process. And further, it's possible to recycle the metal power powder after it's burned. Whoa. Because nothing gets released into the atmosphere. The metal oxide is a solid that you can collect and then recycle. Cool. Wow. This is just one. It's just speculation at this point, but they said, but they were just showing feasibility of, you know, burning the, the powdered metal in this way. Doesn't mean that this will necessarily all work out that we'll end up doing it, but you, you could, you know, burn it as a fuel. Now, of course, it's not a source of energy like fossil fuels are. That's why I said, energy stored in powdered metal. It's essentially like a battery, right? It becomes an energy storage medium. Uh, and then we'd have to see like how efficient the infrastructure would be using powdered metal as an energy storage medium. But that's a big issue, right? That's one of the th- issues that we're facing in trying to shift to a sustainable and a green energy infrastructure is that it'd be awfully nice if we had a way of storing large amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. Because some of the uh, more popular green energies like wind and solar are intermittent. They're, they're not on demand, uh, which means you, you have to store, especially the more of that, the, the more of a percentage of the energy infrastructure is intermittent rather than on demand energy, the more energy storage becomes important. And also the number of applications for which you can use it is greater if you can have a, a, a stored energy medium. We'll see. I feel like, you know, we talk about this all the time. I feel like we're competing on multiple different trajectories and it's like which one is going to really make the breakthrough technological advancement first? Is it going to be battery technology or some other type of energy storage technology? You know, biofuels, I think, is a dark horse. I don't, I don't yeah. have a, a lot of hope that they're going to... Hydro- hydrogen? Well, it's not... Hydrogen, hydrogen has problems because yeah. it's hard to store, <laughs> et cetera. So, yeah, so all three of the biggies, you know, biofuels, hydrogen, and batteries have major limitations. And so I think probably batteries is of those three, you know, we'll yeah. be seeing more. But who knows? It's, it's a little bit hard to predict right now. The coming hydrogen economy. Um, <laughs> still coming. <laughs> still coming. <laughs> Hang on. Which another means 20, that years, new so. research finds that feeding pigs human food waste or swill is partially responsible for the recent swine flu epidemic is complete and utter fiction. Hooray! I made that up. I was absolutely pushing the limits of credibility here. (laughs) That was, you know, that was definitely a ridiculous item. I just want to see if I catch anybody on it, but I'm glad that you guys all got that one correct. The real item, though, that inspired it, and also I wanted to talk about this item because I thought it was interesting, is uh, using swill, using human waste, food waste, not 
waste waste, human food waste as feed for pigs. Now, historically, that's what how pigs were used. Pigs were very e- efficient to have on a farm or whatever yep. because Garbage you could, you could yeah, they 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 recycled all of the food waste into pig, you know, which you would eat. <laughs> into bacon. Yeah, into <laughs> lovely bacon. And, and then you um, bacon scraps. Cancer <laughs> so causing so bacon. On. Yeah, so <laughs> hey. But we don't. We we largely don't do that anymore. Now that was done uh, in the European Union up until 2002, but they had a uh, foot and mouth disease outbreak. Oops! And Gross. that led to a ban on feeding pigs swill. I guess it was contributing to the spread of the disease. Foot and mouth disease. That's like one of the grossest disease names. I know, out right? There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in the US, we also largely do not feed there's just a small subculture of pig farmers who feed pig swill from what I'm reading. We don't we don't um, recycle a lot of food into uh, food. But there's a movement, there's a growing movement to try to bring this back because we waste a lot of food in developed mm. countries. Um, in fact, John Oliver did a segment on it this season on food wastage, and it was really interesting, you know, all the ways. It's it's not necessarily mostly like people from their dinner table. It's like supermarkets who yeah. have Spoilage. food that's like just, uh, just a touch over the limit. You know, it's still edible by humans, but they don't want to sell it, and, they, and they're not legally allowed to donate it, and it just gets wasted. So by some estimates, you know, up to a third of the food that's grown – Never gets eaten by people. You know, a gets third, wasted. yeah. But you know, some some waste, of course, is inevitable in this system. When you think about the fact that we're, you know, making food and sending it around and storing it and cooking it, whatever. I mean, I just can't imagine that we would be able to completely eliminate food wastage. I think there's a certain amount of it baked into the system. But imagine if we could take a lot of that, especially the bulk food wastage that's just being thrown out by like supermarkets, for example, and if we just fed that to pigs. Now, this, there was a recent study which said that if they started feeding food waste swill to pigs in the European Union, they would be able to reduce the land that's used to grow food for pigs by 21.5%, which, oh, wow. of course, could have huge Ooh. environmental benefits. Sure. Yeah, so it's just Cut essentially emissions. there's yep. a certain efficiency to recycling food waste you know, as animal feed. The other countries, like Japan, they mentioned, didn't ban food waste swill because of the hoof and mouth disease, what they did, or the foot and mouth outbreak, what they did was they just treat it. They just heat it to kill any bacteria. Hmm. And and they're fine. They've been fine doing that. So they think that you know the EU and the United States can adopt similar standards where just have treated food waste that is then safe to feed to uh, to pigs without worrying about spreading disease. But something to consider. I think something to explore. Recycling food waste. All right. So good job this week, everyone. Why, thank you. Yeah, we all smelled that one. Yep. Evan, you have a quote for us this week? I do. And it was provided by SGU listener Adam Baring. Thank you, Adam. It sometimes seems to me that we are all afflicted with an urge and have a longing for the impossible. The reality around is too common, too dull, too ordinary for us. We hanker after the unnatural, the supernatural, that which does not exist. We long for a miracle. And that was cur- courtesy of Martus Cornelius Escher, M.C. Escher. Oh, neat. The, the famous 
Dutch graphic artist whose works yeah. I've admired since I was a kid. Cool, cool art. Like every dork, I had one of his posters in my dorm room in college. <laughs> <laughs> but they're awesome. They're just they're awesome. Cool. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Was it the staircase or was yeah. it the one where he was holding the, the globe? The staircase. The okay. Staircase. Yeah. Yeah. The staircase one is titled Relativity. How oh, neat. Uh, and it's, you know, Bob, you'll like that. It's great. You got all these like mummy, mummy-like characters walking all over on the ceilings and on the sides yeah, of the walls yeah. and stuff. Very cool. And the perpetual motion machine one he did with the um, waterfall. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. The waterfall that, that continually runs around itself. So many good ones. Escher's, Escher's wonderful. And apparently somewhat, he was somewhat of a skeptic. So, so that, good for that him. quote, Paul Kurtz wrote about that exact same concept. He called it the transcendental temptation. That people long for some sense of transcendence, to feel part of something greater than ourselves, you know, to break the bonds of just everyday mundane life. And I, I agree. I think we see that all the time. You know, people need something, you know. God, just open your eyes a little wider. Life is anything but mundane and ordinary. Yeah, There's that's so the thing. much great stuff going on, going on around us. So this is a, a deeper concept that we get to as skeptics because we criticize a lot of obviously pseudoscience and you know believing in supernatural and things like that we're not criticizing people for being people right we understand that we are people we understand we have the same impulse it's just that there are adaptive or you know positive ways of channeling these basic human needs and desires and i think there are less adaptive or less positive ways of doing that believing in nonsense or fairy tales like actually believing in it and running your life you know by astrology or whatever i don't think that's very adaptive understanding the awe and wonder that science can give us by giving us an understanding of how unbelievably awesome our universe is that's a pretty adaptive channeling of that same basic desire to to Mm -hmm. to feel you know wonder and transcendence so or you know i think also think it's perfectly fine to engage in an active fantasy life as long as you have a very sharp line between fantasy and reality you know that's your entertainment the problem is when people use entertainment and they believe it's real yep and we, we we know people like that, right? <laughs> Who, <laughs> One or two. We've often said, yeah, just get a hobby, you know, whatever. Just <laughs> play live action role playing, do something. But you, know, but unfortunately, their hobby, their you know, transcendence is they latch onto pseudoscience or mm-hmm. you know Ghost something that's and, yeah, yeah that's not real and sometimes not benign either. All right, well, thank you all for joining me this week, Shirley. Thanks, thank you again. Thanks, Doc. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.